2009, December 1st. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 43, Extraterrestrial Life. And get going. So, the, uh, the class so far has been about life in the universe. And we've spent a lot, a lot of time talking about the evolution of stars, habitable zones on planets. We've talked about SETI, about possible extraterrestrial communication, interstellar travel. But noticeably missing from this whole discussion is, what is extraterrestrial life like? And so I thought a good way to sort of end this unit on life in the universe before we get into the last bits of the class is to step back a little bit and talk a little bit about what would we think extraterrestrial life is going to look like. Now again, this is a topic which could easily phase over into wild pop culture science fiction speculation. And I, of course, couldn't resist the cover picture here is a bunch of... Uh, Hollywood aliens, all of the movie Men in Black, too, but really asked the question from the perspective of all the things we've been doing through this quarter. And what was interesting is, in preparing this lecture, how many of the past lectures I went back to and mined for slides or pictures or ideas. This is one of those lectures where we're going to bring together a lot of the ideas we've talked about and apply them to ask the question, what do we think intelligent life is actually, uh, extraterrestrial life is going to be like informed by what we now know about life on the Earth and, and other, other details. So today we want to ask about the possible nature of, of extraterrestrial life informed by what we know now about evolution and biochemistry. So we want to look, for example, at this is not a term that everyone uses, but we'll, we'll address, for example, what are called universal versus parochial characteristics or traits. What are the things that are actually fundamental to an organism? What are the things that are just sort of an accident of, of evolution? And, and which of those might we think will actually be recapitulated in, uh, in other biospheres, in other planets? Uh, we want to look at an idea which is currently a, a subject of considerable debate among evolutionary biologists referring to the history of life on Earth, and that's the ideas of convergent evolution versus, for lack of a better word, I'll call it radical diversity. What are, the real, one of the, what are some of the controlling aspects what are some of the details of evolution on the Earth that might be recapitulated elsewhere? And what can we learn about them or guess about them based on Earth's history? So that brings us up to sort of a question about life where we're basically making the assumption that life is like Earth life, that it's basically it's carbon-based. And so we're looking at evolution from a perspective that we're familiar with. But what if we relax that assumption? What if we don't have carbon-based life? What about life that has other biochemistries or other media? And we're going to look at two examples of that where people have been actively thinking. The idea of silicon chemistry as an alternative to carbon chemistry for biochemistry. And the ammonia as an alternative to water as a biochemical solvent. What are the ways people are thinking about this? These are older, old ideas. Could these be ways that one could expand the diversity of life by changing the nature of the biochemistry underlying it entirely? And finally, at the end, I'll say a little bit about the possibilities that people have thought about of why don't we ditch chemistry altogether? After all, if, if life can be thought of as self-replicating utilization of energy, why does it have to be chemistry? So this is what we're talking about today. We're going to explore the idea of extraterrestrial life, again, from the perspective of everything we've learned. So we're really starting to get down to the point where we're synthesizing a lot of what we've done in this class. Just to review, one of the, ba one of the ideas that's really gone through as a theme through this class that's informed our investigation of life in the universe is trying to get some understanding of what the basic requirements are of life. And we, we've seen this slide in, in its various and sundry forms where I've tweaked the language a bit. 
We know first and foremost we need a source of energy. We, energy is used to fuel chemical reactions when we're talking about life that we understand it. Warmth permits liquid water or other liquid solvents to exist and, and become a medium for that biochemistry. We know that the complex chemistry is involved. Life viewed as a chemical process requires some very detailed chemistry we often refer to generically as metabolism, the utilization of energy to either uptake nutrients, to perform whatever the functions are of the cell. We know this requires elements heavier than hydrogen and helium, and, it and in case of life as we know it on Earth, carbon is the fundamental building block of that complex chemistry. And, and we know that carbon chemistry, of course, is phenomenally rich in that regard. We know that this chemistry requires some kind of liquid solvent medium, some place for that chemistry to occur. We think it's water. We know certainly water is very abundant on the Earth. And we think, in fact, a way to look for life is to look for places where water can be liquid. But is this assumption necessarily an ironclad one? Should we be looking for other alternatives than water? And finally, we know we need an, a, a location for life to emerge. We've always thought of life as needing a surface, something to stand on or an ocean to swim in or an air to fly through or someplace to stand, crawl, walk, or whatever it is the, the, the creature does for locomotion. Maybe even this, too, might be too parochial of a point of view, too narrow-minded. We're only thinking in terms of solid, rocky planets. Maybe other possibilities exist when we want to expand the idea of what is life going to be like on other worlds. Now, we'll start out with what is our conception, what is our preconceived notions of what extraterrestrials are like. And if you look at popular culture, the depiction of extraterrestrials until recently has largely been humanoids or bipedal rep reptilians. Okay, the reasons for that have nothing to do with science and have everything to do with the power and influence of the Screen Actors Guild. Basically, in movies and other things, they want the aliens to be portrayed by human actors who are paid scale. Okay, and not surprisingly, it's kind of hard to costume an actor so that they are still recognizable and get screen credit time. Um, well, okay, whoever's playing the Gorn there isn't very recognizable. No one knows who the hell he is, probably some stuntman. But simply put, it's basically a matter of narrative and or practical convenience. We have you know, people playing the roles, so not surprisingly, the costumes match the people body form. But this doesn't tell us anything about extraterrestrial life. And in fact, in the day, this is now becoming relaxed because, much to the grief of the Screen Actors Guild, computer graphics is now making the range of possible plausible-looking aliens in live-action uh, movies to be quite phenomenal these days. But Let's back away from sort of the pop culture aspects here and ask a different question. What is it we now know about the evolution of life on Earth and about biochemistry on Earth that could tell us what possible forms extraterrestrial life might take? Using that as a basis, how do we ask the questions of what we might actually expect? One of the ways of, of framing the question is to, is to note something that, again, I'm going to make up the language a little bit here, but this is sort of my, my averaging over many different pieces of literature, that you can pretty much divide, roughly divide, traits that evolve in various organisms on the Earth into two basic categories. The first of these are usually referred to variously as universal characters. These are forms that have evolved in various organisms independently more than once through the history of the Earth. Look everywhere among different creatures, even with the, the just mind-boggling biodiversity of the Earth. Once you get past, even down to the level of, of bacteria, there are structures in these organisms that are repeated over and over again, even though the lineages of those organisms are widely separated evolutionarily. 
So, for example, talking about higher forms of life, animals, big animals like us, things like limbs, eyes, flight, um, going down to the, micro, to the more bio, you know, microbiological level, photosynthesis okay, has evolved in many different directions, many different ways of utilizing light as an energy source. In many creatures from the small to the large, at least on Earth, bilateral symmetry is extremely common. When was the last time you saw a, li a living creature that was not a freak mutant that was, had threefold symmetry to it? Right? Left and right is really fundamental. Now, it turns out left and right is also fundamental in chemistry, so maybe these things are related. No one knows why bilateral symmetry has been favored among every single evolutionary um, lineage on the Earth, with at least up above a certain level of organization. So these traits seem to be universal. And then there are a series of traits which turn out to be what are sometimes various names, but the most common way of referring to them is parochial characters. Parochial means fairly narrow in definition. These are basically arbitrary evolutionary forms which may have no function at all or may perform their functions, but their functions are such that they could be formed by a variety of different structures. So if you want to pose it in anthropomorphic terms of nature posing a problem and evolution providing a solution through development, some functions like holding up a body against gravity, skeletons, whether interior or exterior skeletal structures, are common across various creatures. That would be considering a skeleton is kind of emerging that way as a universal character. But there are different ways in which creatures sort of solve the problem of, you know, hair versus feathers. Um, different types of, of, of organs who, whose solutions can be found in various different ways, even sometimes in ways that you wouldn't even imagine from the original structure. So we try to find out a way to divide out, not focus on the parochial characters, but really try to zoom in on some of the universal characteristics that emerge through evolution. A really good example of this, and what seems to really make a characteristic a universal characteristic, are those that are so useful to the organism, that give it such an advantage in an evolutionary sense, an advantage to reproduce and, and, and radiate into an ecological niche that whenever the environment has required it, they have emerged in a variety of forms. A very good example of this is eyes. Okay? Eyes, vary across, uh, very, eyes are very, very common. Basically, an eye is really, at its fundamental <coughs> basis, is a way of detecting and responding to light. But there are so many different ways in which this could be done. Sensing light is extremely useful to an organism. It's a way of basically interacting with its environment. It helps it find food, it helps it find mates, it helps it find or at least avoid predators that might eat it. So obviously, once you've um, evolved to the point as a higher creature, relatively higher organization creature that can sense light, you have a tremendous advantage over blind creatures in certain environments, environments that are rich in light, which is the surfaces of planets. We find life isn't, eyes are extremely common across life on Earth in radically different forms, but they all solve the same basic problem. And what's interesting is if you look at this diagram over here on the right-hand side, shows sort of the evolutionary progression from the very simplest form of eye to the very complicated camera eye that human beings and higher mammals possess, you can see the intermediate steps. You know, one of the objections is often laid on, on the problem of evolution is, what good is half an eye? 
And the answer is, even something that doesn't even resemble of an eye, if, it res- if it's able to be sensitive to light, apparently has a tremendous advantage because those creatures that have them in a light-rich environment thrive. So in fact, you can find throughout nature, throughout all of the different animals that have eyes, all the various stages of development of these over the very long period of evolution. So it's clear that there's lots of ways in which the problem can be solved. For example, if you look at an octopus eye and a human eye, or, or for cephalopod eyes, not just octopuses, they look remarkably the same, but the details are different. For example, the orientation of the blood vessels in the retina across the back of the eye is exactly the opposite between a human eye and an octopus eye. But they solved, if, solved the same problem, to use the anthropomorphic term. They're both sophisticated camera eyes, they converged on the same solution, but if through slightly different or sometimes even radically different pathways, we're very, very distant really related to cephalopods, and yet those two completely different lineages came up with the same basic solution. It may be an approach to optimization, that physics of the problem of light sensing dictates that certain forms are going to be optimal compared to others. Those optimal forms will have an advantage, and therefore they get expressed through the evolutionary machinery. This brings up the idea which is often referred to as convergent evolution. Convergent evolution describes a process of how similar traits are acquired by very widely unrelated lineages. How two creatures that don't share a common ancestor for a very, very long time, that don't even have these, that these features do not even appear in the common ancestor, nonetheless arrived at the same biological solution to the same biological problem posed by the environment. How did that happen? An example of that, eyes is one example. A good example of that is wings. Right? Bats and birds separately evolve powered flight. They both have the power, their wings are, can be seen morphologically in form, are basically extended limbs. Now, birth, both birds and, and bats share a common ancestor. Now, that common ancestor is many hundreds of millions of years ago. The lineages split off, I think it's in the Pennsylvanian period, into the line that led to dinosaurs, and birds, in fact, are the last surviving dinosaurs. They're the only dinosaur group that survived the Cretaceous tertiary event, the asteroid impact that wiped out the dinosaurs. They're, in fact, theropods. They're not, they're not related to mammals at all. Mammals were the little fuzzballs living in between the ecological niches of the dinosaurs that radiated into the vacated niches when the dinosaurs all died out. Their common ancestor was one of the first land creatures that came up out of the oceans back 300-odd million years ago in the Pennsylvania. Did not have wings. None of those particular creatures that are the common ancestors of either birds or bats, dinosaurs or mammals, had wings. And yet if you look at the wings of a bat and the wings of a bird, they're different in details, but the basic physical structure is the same. Basically, limbs, arms, and fingers extended outwards, skin or membranes between those um, limbs, basically filled in, stayed in, and webbed in the structure, and you have a bat wing and a bird wing. The basic shape of the wing, however, is not, a, not an accident. This is not, you know, evolution is not random. It doesn't work, you're like, it doesn't roll the dice and sees what happened, comes up biochemically. Because creatures, organisms, have to interact with a physical environment and obey physical laws. The laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, laws of aerodynamics, laws of of photonics prevail regardless of what biochemistry is doing. If you don't work, you don't work and you don't get an advantage. But when you do work, 
that provides such an advantage that evolution drives that development forward. So evolution is not random. It's not playing dice with biochemistry. There's a lot of influences in this. We don't understand what all those influences are. But one of the things that's pretty clear is the wing isn't going to work unless it works as a physical wing. It obeys the laws of aerodynamics. So the basic shape of the wing here has been dictated by the physics of flight. Evolution has provided the way to move into that optimum solution. So this is the part of the basis of what's called convergent evolution. A problem has been posed by the environment. An advantage is acquired if you can fly, if you can move through the air, gliding or even, in this case, powered flight, not just simply leaping over long distances. But the physics of flight dictated which forms were going to be the ones that had an advantage, not necessarily the environment. So it's a w different way in which an environmental pr a pressure is put upon an evolutionary system to guide development over long periods. And that's this idea of convergent evolution. Two completely different pathways can lead to a similar solution. Now, if convergent evolution is, as some people suspect, and not everyone agrees with this in evolutionary biology, suspect that it is a dominant force in evolution. It's one of the guiding pieces of evolution. That extraterrestrials that evolved in other environments that are roughly similar to the Earth in terms of biochemistry, having atmospheres, having oceans, may in fact look grossly similar. Of course, the evolutionary process is going to proceed through its own low-level randomness, and it's going to arrive at those solutions in different ways. But the optimum solution is dictated by the physics of the problem, how you fly, how you swim, how you see, etc. You can't do it just any other way. So it might be that certain universal characteristics that are driven strongly by convergent evolution will be recapitulated in extraterrestrial species. We might find that, for example, if convergent evolution is correct, light-sensitive organs, eyes of some kind, will be common from humans to extraterrestrials. Skeletons might be extremely common. They're a very good structure for providing a scaffolding to hold complex organs and things together against the gravity field so you don't fall to the ground in a big sort of blob. Limbs have a lot of advantages. You can think about them in terms of mechanical, right? They're levers. There's a lot of things you can do with that. Again, that's a physics or an engineering problem. So it could be that despite all the apparent randomness of evolution, random mutations, the way things work in evolution, there may in fact be underlying driving forces, if you will. They have to obey the laws of physics. May in fact lead to optimal solutions which are common even in lineages which aren't even related at all again, say, uh, creatures living on some other planet that have evolved up to an advanced form of life. So maybe the Hollywood depiction of an, of an alien here shown by the, the uh, eponymous E.T. E may not be all that crazy. It isn't just simply a means of an advantage of using screen actors or lack of human imagination. Certain pieces of the body plan of advanced animals may in fact reflect physical realities which are imposed upon the process of evolution through this process of convergent evolution. That's one idea, but it's not universally held. In fact, there's a tremendous debate within evolutionary biology over the importance of convergent evolution as a driving force. The alternative view doesn't have a snazzy name like convergent evolution. Sometimes it's referred to as divergent evolution, but that doesn't seem to have caught on. So I'm going to basically call it radical diversity, for lack of a better word. Basically, the alternative is that there's radical evolutionary diversity, 
which is driven not by so much the laws of physics, but by unpredictable and unrepeatable historical contingency in the environments that those organisms have lived in. What do I mean by contingency? Contingency basically can be defined as stuff in history that just happens. So for example, let's ask the question, we here are mammals, are the dominant large land species here on the Earth today. But we're only here because most of the dinosaur species, which were the dominant land species for tens of millions of years, were wiped off the face of the planet by an asteroid impact that created the Chicxulub Crater 65 million years ago. We emerged out of, our ancestors, if you will, emerged out of the ecological niches, radiated forward, and we are here today having this conversation. Only birds survive the impact of the asteroid. But what if that asteroid didn't hit the Earth? What if there was a slight nudge in that asteroid and it missed the Earth completely? It doesn't take much. It really doesn't. Then maybe, as this nifty little museum piece here shows, maybe this particular type of sauropod might have evolved something into bipedal dinoman there. It's just a guess. I mean, they're basically taking reasonable developmental pathways, putting environmental pressures on them. What would dinosaurs have evolved into, right? If the, if the asteroid hadn't smacked the Earth 65 million years ago, the dinosaurs would not have stopped evolving. They would have continued to go through 65 million years of evolution. Okay? Look at what on Earth 65 million years of evolution did to get from fuzzball mammals to the mammals and immense diversity of mammals we see around us today. So those same processes would be acting on the dinosaurs just like they had been through the entire period. We can't predict what the dinosaurs would have looked like. This is one developmental biologist's sort of fanciful guess. But that evolution would have continued. Mammals would never have had a chance to radiate into ecological niches and would have remained in the, niche, in the cracks vermin, fuzzballs. Maybe food, who knows. However, an asteroid hit and that contingent event, there's nothing... Deterministic, right? There's nothing that says, okay, now uh, six, you know, four and a half point five billion years in that planet's history, time to hit it with an asteroid. It's just a random event, completely separate from the biological process. That's an example of a contingent event. You can think of these in human history, right? Well, how would the Civil War have turned out if, you know, thus and such a bit of intelligence had not occurred, or an army had taken a left turn instead of a right turn? That's an idea of contingency. We have to be very careful about how determined, you know, their convergent evolution makes it look like physical processes make evolution deterministic. You start here, you will definitely end up here at this progressive optimal solution. But in the history of the Earth, contingency has played a very dynamic role. That maybe says that we're fooling ourselves into thinking that convergent evolution is dominant because to upset the determinism or the apparent and I should be careful to say, apparent determinism of convergent evolution is all i got to do is throw a rock at the right time. There's another place where you can look at it, which isn't quite as dramatic as throwing rocks at the right time. Go back about five, 500 million years to the Cambrian explosion, the sudden appearance of highly complex life forms at the beginning of the Cambrian era. Many of the body plans that we see on Earth emerged during the Cambrian explosion. In addition to the body plans that we see around us now, there were many other body plans that emerged during the Cambrian explosion that did not make it. They were evolutionary dead ends, or for whatever reason, maybe not evolutionary dead ends, but they were dead ends. They never produced descendants that I can look around me and say, oh, look, there's a possible descendant of that particular body plan. There's some radical stuff in the Precambrian fauna, in the Cambrian fauna, excuse me, 
that there are no equivalents today. Those body plans went extinct. We are very likely related to, this is not a common ancestor, but this is the earliest chordate. It's called Pikea, Pikea. It's found in there. It's the first appearance of what looks like a spinal cord. It's not a vertebrate per se, but probably one of its descendants was the common ancestor of all vertebrate life on the earth. What if Pikea didn't make it? There wouldn't be any vertebrates in the earth, maybe. There might be something else completely. Why did Pikea make it and some other body plan didn't? We don't know. Maybe it was some contingent event. Maybe a volcano went off in a place that took out one of those body plans. We just don't know why. Pikea made it and another one didn't. So this is where this idea of radical diversity basically says we take the Earth's biodiversity, we look at its tremendous richness, it's only the foreground of what could be an immense diversity of possible evolutionary pathways repeated on world after world throughout the galaxy. If that's the dominant force, if that's really what's important is this role of sort of accidental contingency, get hit by an asteroid, species that turns out to be the common ancestor in the wrong place at the wrong time, we have no way to guess what extraterrestrials might look like. They would be completely unrecognizable because the structures that we see around us today are, if you will, just because those particular base common ancestors survived 500 million years ago. So you can see where there's no clear um, conclusion I can reach from this. There's two different poles of the argument now, convergent evolution versus radical diversity. And the arguments swing back and forth both ways as to which one's more correct. For example, um, uh, Morris, who was one of the principal people to work in the Burgess Shale, actually is a supporter of convergent evolution and thinks, in, for example, that extraterrestrials might look very much like us, at least in gross body plan. The late Stephen Jay Gould has argued very strongly from the same basis of data for ideas of the importance of contingency in history. It's a very robust argument going on among uh, evolutionary biology today, and either one of these arguments could tell us which way it goes. My personal guess, and I'm not an evolutionary biologist, and I do not play one on the internet, but I do have at least some knowledge of you know, reading of these arguments, is you get the impression, because I'm a physicist, that physics has got to matter. So it's probably going to be some combination of the two. The argument is not whether it's convergent evolution or radical diversity, but which one is the dominant one and under what circumstances. Which one drives it? They both clearly operate. Okay, so don't see this as a false either-or solution. Both are operating. The question's not about whether they operate, but how strong they are and when. Questions about this. This is what we've learned. So this is an interesting idea. So let's take a different tack. Okay, so evolutionary biology suggests that maybe we go out and we'd recognize ET. Other areas might be that, hmm, the blob looks interesting. wonder what that is. But there's another possible way in which we, extraterrestrial life might be different in ways that are surprising. If we look at life on Earth, the principal elements of life on Earth are the four fundamental elements, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, the, the Chan elements. Right? Carbon chemistry is the basis of all the life here on Earth. It's the basis of organic chemistry. Water, hydrogen, and oxygen is the universal solvent of life on the Earth. Nitrogen, which is one of the principal components of our atmosphere, is one of the key chemical components of life because it plays the key chemical role in amino acids and DNA. Two other elements come into play. Phosphorus, 
shows up as a principal element. In fact, of the, the uh, phosphorus is a principal component of the sugar backbone of DNA and RNA. It's a principal phosphate group, so are the principal components of the ADP and ATP molecules that are the primary energy source in all cells in the earth. Sulfur plays a role. Sulfur appears in a lot of amino acids, in particular appears in cysteine and methionine, which have very f- important functions within cells, and appears in a lot of other ways. And there are lots of other metals that are involved as well, but le- to a lesser degree. So Earth, if you want to take Earth apart biologically, it's carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur. The reason why carbon chemistry is so important on here on the Earth is carbon has very unique properties that make it exceedingly versatile. Carbon nucleus has six protons, to remind you, that's what makes it carbon, with six neutrons that gives it the total weight of 12 for the, the most common isotope that we use. Each proton is balanced by a single electron. The electrons arrange themselves in two shells around the carbon. Two electrons form a closed inner shell, so those electrons are pretty much lost to us for chemistry. But the other four still have an open shell. I would have to have a grand total of eight electrons in that outer shell to close it off chemically. But there are, in fact, four valence electrons, and they are available for bonding. The reason they are available for bonding is, again, review of chemistry. Another atom, like a hydrogen, comes by, brings its electron, and I could put one, two, three, four hydrogens there. Each hydrogen brings its electron for a grand total of eight electrons closing the shell. That's how chemical bonding works. So carbon with four available sites can bond to any other element that has an electron to give it, but especially it can bond to carbon. And it can have a one bond, or even a double bond, or even a triple bond. So you can get very, very strong chemical bonds. As a consequence of this, carbon has a phenomenally rich chemistry. We've already seen this earlier. It can form long chains or polymers. It can form chains that branch off in various and sundry ways. Here's two forms of carbon that have exactly the same numbers, four carbons and ten hydrogens, but you change the shape by just branching instead of being a line. It it behaves completely different chemically, but it's the same number of atoms, so the arrangements are very versatile. The fact that you can arrange the atoms in various ways gives them handedness. You can have a left-handed version and a right-handed version of the same uh, molecule. You can uh, build these things with carbon skeletons with multiple double bonds, and you simply change the location of that bond. You change the behavior of that molecule. So even with a very simple thing, with a small number of atoms, you can have a tremendous diversity of chemical forms. You can even form them into closed rings or networks of rings. So literally millions of carbon compounds, so-called organic compounds, can be formed out of carbon. All of these things dissolve readily in liquids, especially water, ammonia, and other solvents. So it's almost ideal. It dissolves in a basic liquid medium that's got a lot of the properties you want. It's got an extremely rich chemistry. It's energetically very feasible. Carbon chemistry is phenomenal, and in fact, it rules completely all of organic chemistry on the Earth. And in fact, carbon-organic compounds are found throughout interstellar space. We see them in molecular clouds. We see them in comets, we see them on asteroids, there's a hint that basically carbon chemistry is the chemistry of life throughout the entire universe. But is that true? Are there any alternatives to carbon chemistry, despite its wonders? Well, here's the periodic table of the elements. Carbon sits over here in the position number six here. Turns out that, remember, the periodic table of the elements is arrangement of atoms by their weight, going from lightest to heaviest across the diagonal, reading the table left to right, top to bottom. 
But also the vertical arrangement, the two-dimensional structure here, is set by anything within a given column of the table here has the same chemical binding properties. So for example, everything in the carbon row has four valence electrons available. Anything in the nitrogen row has three valence electrons. Anything in the oxygen row has two valence electrons, and so forth. So they have similar, they're chemically similar. So let's pay attention to these particular two elements. There's carbon. The one right below it in the periodic table is silicon. Silicon is a very common element in the universe. In fact, in the Earth, silicon is the most abundant element, hands down, not carbon. So could silicon, which has chemical similarities with carbon, be an alternative basis for life? It's very interesting how it is similar. Okay, we have 14 protons and neutrons instead of six. So I, first of all, each of those 14 protons has 14 electrons for the neutral silicon. The first two electrons form a closed inner shell. The next eight electrons form a closed second shell. Okay, well, two plus eight is 10. 10 minus 14 minus 10 is four. So I'm left with four valence electrons in the third shell. Those four electrons are available for chemical bonding. Just like carbon, only heavier, and the bonds occur in the outer shell, so they're a little bit weaker. So what does, what does silicon do? What does silicon chemistry look like? This is already pretty promising. Silicon's abundant, and it has very similar chemical binding properties. Well, it turns out that the analogy is, in fact, extended. Silicon does have a lot of analog analogs to carbon chemistry in a lot of different ways. For example, you can form silicon hydrogen compounds. You can take an electron, a hydrogen come in and give its electron, to share its electron with one of those valence electrons. So I can make silane, silicon H4. So I can basically make a silicon analog of methane. Methane is CH4, silane is silicon H4. I can take two silicons together and form a chain and then tie hydrogens to the three remaining valence bonds and I get disilane, Si2H6. That's the silicon analog of ethane, C2H6, and so on and so forth down the line. I can actually build chains, and I can even build rings of silicon. So in principle, silicon chemistry could be as rich and as complex as carbon chemistry. In fact, it could, could in principle, although in detail we're going to see there's a little problem here in a second, you could reproduce the entire richness of carbon chemistry with silicon. There's nothing to stop you, right? It's the same bonding structure. So you do that. Could you then build up a parallel silicon biochemistry? All the biochemicals, but now you just simply replace all the carbons with a silicon. And heck, you might even have some fun in there because you can have silicon carbon chemistry going on. So maybe there's some interesting stuff going on. People have thought about this. They speculated that silicon tends to make compounds that are very heat tolerant. Silicon makes crystalline form, so maybe silicon life fancifully might be crystalline in form and be able to tolerate extremely high temperatures. This has been a real favorite of science fiction writers. Whenever I looked up silicon life and tried to find articles on the web, I always seemed to come up in the search with one reference to the Horta. And so I said, okay, what the hell is the Horta? And it turns out, well, of course, it's an original Star Trek episode which introduced a silicon-based form of life. It's a big, fa big, big fans of, the, of, of silicon or the science fiction writers. So people think, well, maybe silicon can form this alternative, this sort of parallel biochemistry, and you could have silicon world rather than carbon world.
This brings up an interesting question. If you look at the silicon abundance of the Earth, it's really high. It's way, way more than the amount of carbon on the Earth. The reason for that is because we're in the inner solar system and carbon didn't condense in the inner solar system. It condensed in the outer solar system and came in in small amounts on chondritic meteorites. Silicon condensed in the inner hot portions of the solar system. So why is all life on Earth very obviously carbon-based, even though it's down by a factor of a few hundred in abundance? And the answer is silicon's got some problems. The biggest problem with the silicon is those bonds are in an outer shell. They're in a third shell rather than a second shell. This makes those bonds weaker. The carbon, the silicon-silicon bonds only have about half the strength of a carbon-carbon bond. And those long chains of carbons are really held together by the single carbon bond. So if you cut down the strength of that bond, you make it easy to break. In fact, silane is highly reactive in water. And silicon chains basically come apart almost spontaneously. Basically, the random thermal motions of the molecule has enough energy to break up the bonds in the silicon chain. That's why we don't find long-chain silicon molecules here on the Earth. They're extremely chemically unstable. The environment basically has enough energy to bust the bonds. Now, it turns out that silicon hydrogen and silicon oxygen bonds are a whole lot stronger than the silicon-silicon bonds. So if you take a, a soup, a chemical soup, if you will, of silicon, hydrogen, and oxygen, you're more likely to form silicon hydrogen and silicon oxygen molecules than you are to form silicon chains. It's energetically disfavored to form silicon chains. So, for example, the oxygen bond is even stronger than that of hydrogen. So, in fact, if you add silicon and oxygen, you'll form silicate before you would find, form silane. Now, the problem is, okay, so I make SiO2. SiO2 is not water-soluble. So you already have a problem with having a fluid medium for biochemistry. Turns out there is a stable form of silicon. Silicates are used quite often. In fact, these diatoms here, shown in this electron, in this um, sorry, electron microgram, a phase microgram over here on the right, they have silicon exoskeletons, silicates, SiO2, forming nice big networks of crystals. So they basically have crystal bodies, but they use silicon only as a convenient skeletal structure in the same way that we use calcium. As a, as a skeletal structure. Even though we're carbon-based, they use it as a container for the carbon chemistry that goes on inside the silicon. Turns out there is a form of silicon which is stable. Silicon oxygen, silicon oxygen forms silicones, silicone cement. It, on the other hand, doesn't have some of the properties you would like it to do for life, so silicone life is probably out. So as promising as silicon is, and as beloved as it is of the science fiction writers, in fact, the consensus is beginning to form that silicon is highly unlikely to be a viable alternative for carbon. So what about alternatives to water? Right? Water is a liquid medium, a solvent medium. What can we find out there that might be biochemistry that occurs not in water, but in something else? Well, a, a real popular alternative is ammonia, NH3. Right? Water is H2O. Turns out to be it's an actually very close analog to water. It dissolves most organic compounds. In organics, I'm talking about carbon compounds. It dissolves many of the same essential elements that we need, phosphorus, sulfur, sodium, magnesium, and so forth. It doesn't react very strongly with a lot of other metals that turn out to be useful for life, like selenium and some other funny, heavy stuff. Um, there turn out to be whole systems of organic and inorganic chemistry that do, in fact, occur in liquid ammonia that do not occur in water. So, in fact, ammonia enables certain types of chemistry that simply won't occur in a liquid water medium. And, in fact, people have proposed and made 
analogs to the various carbon life compounds by replacing the hydroxyl, the OH, which comes from water, with the amine, the NH2, that would come from a reaction with a compound dissolved in ammonia rather than water. So, for example, you could make um, analogs of alcohols and sugars that use, instead of having hydroxyls on the end, have amines on the end. And people have, in fact, done this in a limited sense in the laboratory. So ammonia actually shows itself to have some promise as an alternative, if you will, medium for biochemistry to swim in. And carbon chemistry to boot, which we know is very effective. Now, a big problem with this and why the experimental work in ammonia chemistry has been very difficult is that ammonia at Earth-like conditions is only liquid at very low temperatures. A reminder that water, H2O, is liquid from 0 to 100 degrees Celsius, so it has a 100 degrees Celsius temperature range. But ammonia is liquid from 78 to 33 degrees below 0 Celsius, where water freezes with only about a 45 degrees Celsius range. So this is, this is liquid ammonia here in this test tube is extremely cold. It's basically a, it's, it's a quasi-cryogenic fluid in addition to being nasty and, and reactive and toxic to us. So this is a problem because very low temperatures means you don't have a lot of ambient thermal energy for assisting chemical reactions. So you slow down a lot of organic chemical reactions require some warmth. But, and this is the, the, the interesting but, That proviso is these temperatures for ammonia are for one atmosphere like on the Earth. Put ammonia on a big planet that has a reducing atmosphere that can generate 60 atmospheres of pressure, and the boiling point of ammonia is not 33 degrees below zero Celsius, but 98 degrees Celsius, and the temperature range is almost 170 degrees Celsius. Water is vapor into those conditions. So if you had a reducing atmosphere, and you might have a large rocky planet, or maybe even a gas planet, people have thought about that, with a heavy reducing hydrogen chemistry rich atmosphere, then ammonia in liquid form could play the same role that water plays in a low gravity oxidizing atmosphere. It has a wide range of temperature. It's liquid in a temperature range, which is conducive to to organic chemistry. It enables a lot of organic chemistry here on the Earth. Ammonia could, in fact, be a likely medium for holding liquid water, or for holding biochemistry. And, in fact, holding a chemistry which might be analogous in many ways, carbon-based, but with a little bit of different twists. So this idea came up early in the 20th century. J.B.S. Haldane, for example, uh, evolutionary biologist, early in the 20th century, hit on this idea, and people have carried this forward. One of the areas that astrobiologists are interested in is starting to pursue this idea. Maybe there is, there are ammonia worlds. So the... New Yorker cartoon of the alien crash landing in the desert saying ammonia, ammonia, instead of water, water, as he drives up in the desert, might not be all that crazy, although ammonia would not be very, if he's an ammonia-based liquid creature here, he's going to basically evaporate almost immediately in one atmosphere pressure. Maybe he crash lands on Venus, he might find it much more, well, still too hot, but too bad. So finally, I want to throw a little bit of wild speculation as we've been sort of We have this sort of carbon chauvinism, carbon chemistry is good, we have kind of a water chauvinism. What if we also have a chemistry chauvinism? If we view life broadly as organized organized energy-using reactions, there are other ways to use energy besides breaking and, and, and establishing chemical bonds. I can, for example, use nuclear binding energy. So, and I didn't realize this until I was doing the research for this lecture, 
Frank Drake, once again, had this idea. They said, you know, the surface of a neutron star is a lot more like the surface of a planet than a gaseous star. It's nearly solid because it's hyper-compressed neutron material. It's the core of an evolved star. So in the high gravity of this, you might, in fact, have forms of life that are organized nuclear reactions. Nuclear reactions run very fast, so they might, in fact, evolve in a day where it took life a billion years on the Earth. This is purely the realm of science fiction, but uh, Robert Forward's novels, Dragon's Egg and Starquake, proposed the Chila, which were creatures that lived on the surface of a neutron star passing near the solar system, who did just that. They evolved during the course of a day when being studied by human beings. It, they're actually really fun novels to read of so-called hard science fiction. This one's actually worth a read. They're really quite interesting, but it's science fiction. So why are we doing this? Why are we contemplating extraterrestrial life? Well, one is not, we don't know if we're ever going to meet extraterrestrials. It's going to be hard to test these principles, so some people kind of poo-poo the idea and say, why bother? But in fact, I think it's actually got a utility other than asking about extraterrestrial life. Is It's really focusing questions on, by asking, well, how might life emerge on our own world? It sort of asks us to sort of really evaluate, well, what are the processes that were important when life emerged on our world, which we can test in the geological record and in today? If these kinds of questions are not just simply playing science fiction games, we're really asking questions which are bearing down at the heart of the inner working of life and biological evolution. By casting them in this what-if way, we ask what is important, what is fundamental, and what is not. So in the end, trying to ask the question of what is extraterrestrial life like, so we're really asking the question is, how did Earth's life work? And that's where we are today. Any questions? Thank you all. I'll see you all tomorrow.